0: Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. Today's episode builds on Tuesday's conversation with Melissa Carney. There, we focused on the role of family structure in inequality issues in the United States. Today, I'm looking at the role of government when it comes to alleviating poverty in the US, especially after COVID payment supports expired last year. My guest today is Nikhil Goyal, a sociologist and policymaker who served as a senior policy advisor for Senator Bernie Sanders. Nikhil has two things that he recently wrote that are especially worth reading. The first is a guest essay in the New York Times from September titled, America Pulled Children Out of Poverty. Now it's set to reverse course with a vengeance. And he also released a new book back in August, Live to See the Day, Coming of Age in American Poverty. The underlying story here is as part of the response to COVID, the US federal government significantly reduced the child poverty rate by pouring resources into vulnerable families and the obviously affected children. As part of the expiration of those benefits, child poverty really came. Rolling back. Now, you can have all sorts of qualms with our approach to poverty in this country and the obvious philosophical debates about the role of government in those issues. But I just think the stark increase in poverty after the supports expired gets to the core of the debate that we should be having in this country about how government should impact the lives of those back home. This is a great conversation, and I really recommend you engage with all of Nikhil's work. He is very young, a few years younger than me, but I definitely think he's a voice who we'll all be hearing from more in the future. Hope you all enjoy this conversation, and a huge thank you to the Foundation for American Innovation, supporting the work of this podcast. Nikhil Goyal, welcome to The Realignment. Thanks so much for having me. I am so excited to speak with you. I want to just say a quick note to the audience, um, if you'll give me a second here. What's been really cool about doing the Realignment podcast, and especially starting the podcast when I was like 27, was that over time I've been able to transition the podcast purely from speaking to some like august person who I've been hearing about for decades um, to having conversations like the one I'm about to have right now. Um, Nikhil is so interesting. I think he is incredibly promising. And I think for a lot of folks, this is going to be your introduction to his work. So that's just an exciting thing that's kind of uh, been able to evolve. So let's just kind of start with the introduction. Like, who are you? Um, What's your background? Um, What work did you do for Bernie Sanders? And then we can get into the actual topic at hand.
1: Sure. Well, thanks so much again for uh, having me and engaging with um, this book and my work. Um, So I grew up on Long Island, went to, you know, well-funded, affluent public schools uh, spent a lot of time writing about the public education system and the lives of, of children uh, experiencing various systems and institutions. Um, and then I went off to Goddard College, uh, a small liberal arts school in Vermont, uh, which was started by a disciple of John Dewey um, and prizes experiential and self-directed learning, uh, the community as the uh, classroom and the curriculum. Um and uh, just a, a very fascinating model of progressive education, um, and I took that those experiences and decided that I was going to go to grad school, and went off to the University of Cambridge, uh, where I did my master's and Ph.D. in uh, sociology of uh, education. And uh, after the Ph.D., um, I had the enormous and incredible opportunity to work for Senator Sanders on the Senate Budget Committee, starting in. Uh, March 2021, uh, my very first day was the day the American Rescue Plan was passed by the U.S. Senate um, and was there for the pa-
0: for uh, for two years and just left a couple months ago. That's fascinating. So let's actually get into that. I think the newsiest aspect of this conversation and the aspect which folks can just see a New York Times op-ed you wrote that link to has been the um. uh, Census Bureau's reveal of the fact that the child poverty rate doubled last year, which is actually the single- uh the largest single year increase in our country's history um what's happening there what's your summation of that
1: yeah no it's it's an uh it's it's just an incredible and harrowing development um you know every september the census bureau comes out with their annual poverty report um they have the official poverty measure as well as the supplemental poverty measure in, in recent years and on spm which is considered by scholars and economists and other experts to be more accurate uh depiction of the level of poverty in this country uh that that uh the SPM level uh for child poverty doubled um from uh 5.1 to more than uh 12% um which meant that 5 million children were plunged into poverty in just a single year the largest single yearly increase in American history um and so it's it's just a um uh, and 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 the reason for that as they point and other people A point in the past uh, is due to the expiration of the expanded child tax credit and other pandemic era uh, social and economic programs that lifted millions and millions of children and families out of poverty and economic uh,
0: insecurity. Something I kind of wonder, and obviously there's a bracketed timeline on those additional levels of support that folks got, but I'm wondering, especially given the story that you tell in the book, is it possible that just getting support for one year Is that in the long term going to be transformative? So, like, let's say there's like this one year where this first grader can have the proper school uniform, doesn't have to have any issues with transportation. Mm. Something gets fixed. Like in the in the book, there are so many instances of like, well, there's this broken tiling, and the you know bathtub is going to collapse into the um, actual kitchen. What is the impact of the ability to handle those issues for one year going to be long term? Me, wrong term meaningful or or is this just going basically going to go to zero over time
1: or sure. yeah no it's a, it's a very important question um and you referenced the book which came out of my graduate studies um called live to see the day coming of age in american poverty where i followed three puerto rican kids who grew group in the poorest neighborhood of philadelphia called kensington um and so the, you know the question around uh whether you know say you had one year of economic security and stability. You know, well-funded public school, uh, you had all the basic necessities for a dignified life. Uh, obviously, that's going to improve your quality of life for that year. The question is whether that will continue um, beyond that. And um, I think the, the poverty report, as well as other economic indicators, have shown that when, you, uh, when those programs expire, when they wind down, uh, people will often be thrown back into the same or similar situations as they were. Before those programs began, and you can see that not just with the expanded child tax credits, but the expiration of the uh, SNAP emergency allotments, food insecurity is at uh, the highest levels uh, in three years. Um, you see it on the on uh, on housing um, as a result of the expiration of the emergency rental assistance and uh, some of the other tenant protections that were given to tenants during the pandemic, and as well as the ev- eviction moratorium. Uh, housing insecurity, particularly homelessness, has uh, reached record levels, um, and so I think the the research and the and the data show uh, that unless these programs are made permanent, uh, people will fall back into uh, the economic insecurity that they faced uh, in, in the past.
0: So I'm just gonna I was gonna say I'm gonna play dumb, but actually I have no expertise in this field, so I actually I'm just asking questions that are coming to mind. Why do people people fall back into poverty after receiving the supports that they have been given, right? So once again, and the book does a great job of articulating this, if you've gotten money for a year or two to fix up your car or buy a proper fitting set of clothes, it seems like Maybe you could have raised the floor for yourself, or you could have just been in a little bit more of a stable position and therefore be able to experience the American dream and kind of move out of that precarious state. So if that's like not quite possible, I'm wondering: is there a way that we could structure? aid to families, aid to children, aid to just individuals, so that we're not merely offering a temporary Band-Aid that could be uh, removed with the expiration of political will, but would actually move someone up to the next stage of development or just, you know, the general rung on the American class structure. Like, how do you think about that?
1: Sure. Well, I think it's important to just recognize that a um, a sizable share of uh, America's poor are children. Um, and these are people that are not working. I mean, they're you know even if you give them, um, uh, e- even if the economy uh, is doing uh, incredibly well in terms of low unemployment and uh, lower inflation uh, and a tight labor market, you know, children uh, are uh, they need those basic economic and social benefits and the various uh, public assistance programs just to maintain a sense of livelihood. Um, and so I think the pandemic showed that during you know, those economic cushions allowed people um, to have a sense of stability for that period of time. And for some, that might have meant that they could then go out and get a higher paying job. And we saw with the pandemic and the American Rescue Plan and other uh, economic policies that because of the tight labor market, wages for the, uh, the lowest earning, uh, the lowest income people have actually gone up. Uh, at, at very high levels more than we've seen in, in many decades you know we've seen decades of wage compression and stagnation but during the pandemic and uh, in, in, in the aftermath of the pandemic um, th- those groups of people have actually seen an enormous wage increases. The question is will that sustain uh, over time? Um, that is you know yet to be um, actually fully understood. but but yeah I think it's important to recognize that a lot of these folks who are poor and low income are children, Elderly, disabled um, people who need uh, those safety net programs—not just to survive, but to um, to have a some level of of stability in their
0: lives. And what, quote unquote, went wrong here? Why did these benefits, with very clear, so for example, this isn't a amorphous. Policy program from the 70s where we could debate, did this have impact? Like, did this work? Is there a limit to what the federal government can do? Like very clearly at a pure data level, it's been agreed that there was some deep, deep, deep impact here. So if that's true, what do you see as happening that caused them to expire without renewal?
1: Storm. Sure. And I think it's important to just point out that as as you were alluding to, poverty is not some intractable problem. Um, it's seen as this very complex problem from uh at least in the way the public views it, but it, it's actually a very solvable issue. Um, during the pandemic, both a Republican president, Donald Trump, and a Democrat president, Joe Biden, enacted trillions and trillions of dollars of social spending in the form of the economic impact payments, of expanded unemployment insurance, and the expanded child tax credit. And together, collectively, that lifted uh, millions of children and families uh, out of poverty. Uh, and when the child tax credit uh, expired, the expanded version in December of 2021, um, three million kids um, who were were plunged back into poverty immediately. Um, you know the data was just harrowing um, of what we saw in starting in 2022, and uh, you know when when I was at the Senate, uh, there there was this thought among Democratic policymakers that you know if we're going to have this temporary expansion of the CTC. Uh, then surely uh, the American public will rally behind this program. And there's no way that, uh, that we'll not be able to make this a permanent measure. And I think that was, um, you know, obviously that was wrong. Um, and that inclination uh, was especially wrong during this very polarizing time uh, in Washington. Um, and, I th- you know, I think there was a number of challenges as part of that. One was a lot of people didn't realize that they were getting uh, the CTC, um, they thought it was say another stimulus check or uh, another um, economic impact payment. They didn't view it as a separate uh, entity um, And then two, I think there was a problem of messaging. Uh, 60 million children got the CTC in July, August, September, and onwards. 60 million kids. I mean that was that was a remarkable achievement in social policy. and um, you know I wish the president had made a primetime speech. I wish every Democratic member of Congress, Held a town hall in July of 2021 um, to announce to the public that we we reduced child poverty more than any than any other administration and in, in Congress in in, in uh, recent American history. That we made it so that middle income and low income families could have, could uh, could more easily afford childcare and housing and healthcare and other basic necessities. They did not take sufficient credit for that. Um, and you know trump during the during the early stage of the pandemic often would say um that oh i i want to sign the stimulus checks and people were you know democrats were lambasting him and and uh ridiculing him for that but i would actually say that that inclination was correct because too often public policy is is hidden people don't see the necessarily see the effects of it you know there's sociologists and and um, and, and other scholars call this a hidden welfare state. People don't recognize how much government benefits their lives on a daily basis. And so I think in terms of, one, the um, the fact that people didn't know they were getting the CCC, and then second, the failure messaging. I th- And then finally, uh, the uh, the fact that Senator Manchin and 50 Senate Republicans were not in support of uh, the proposal. Uh, all of that collectively, I think, led to the demise of that program. Um, and then we're also seeing that with a number of the other programs that I mentioned, SNAP or housing assistance or um, or, or, or Medicaid uh, expansion, uh, you know, everything is just falling by the wayside and we're seeing a rebounding of economic security and levels that we have not seen in in several years.
0: Here's something I'd love for you to explain from an insider perspective. During for the past several years, especially really since uh, Trump's election and some of the dissatisfaction with the fallout of uh, Obamacare, there's been significant energy on the progressive left directed towards passing universal health care. Um, and this wasn't just sort of an academic think tanky podcasty world. But, like there were whole parts of the 2020 Democratic primary where you had like very wonky on the debate stage, debates about the nuances of this policy versus that policy, who actually supported it versus didn't support it. But just hearing the story you just told me from a pure pragmatism perspective, from a pure can this actually be passed and like actually we can see in a time of diminishing budgets and austerity there's actually energy to pass this and have impact, why doesn't expanding the CTC and other policies of child tax credit attract the same amount of energy from the left as I don't want to say pie in the sky because universal healthcare would obviously have a real effect. But from a pure legislative math perspective, mm. I think it's, it's it's it is literally impossible to get Joe Manchin on board. Some form of universal healthcare. I do not think it was impossible with I think slightly different uh, timelines or approaches to get him yeah. on board a child tax credit expansion. So love to hear your perspective on that take.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's a it's an interesting point. Um, I think the the fact that the the federal government issued stimulus checks in 2020 and 2021 uh provided space for a robust conversation uh and public demand for an expanded child tax credit um i think that people people were a- attuned to the idea that the government could give you a check every for for mm. some period of time and i think that allowed uh democrats to go big and bold um you know the the for, for a number of years, there's been you know, all the way from Senator Michael Bennett to Representative Rosa DeLauro uh, have been pushing for universal uh child allowance modeled after the um the child tax credit. And I think the pandemic uh, allowed, uh, gave space for that. Um and 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 then the the president um when he when he took office uh with you know what, what egged on by uh House and Senate Democrats decided to make this a cornerstone of his agenda. Um, I think universal healthcare is a little bit more, obviously a lot more complicated because there's a lot more public, uh there's they're very very competing interests and there's a lot more money, I think, uh involved in terms of lobbying on either side. Uh, and then obviously you have the one of the most well-funded industries, the healthcare and pharmaceutical industry that is would be directly impacted by any any public policy in that sphere. Um and I, I, I would say that I, I wish there was more. Uh, there would have been more interest by progressive organizations uh, fighting for the uh, expanded CTC. Um, you know, there was some incredible work by the Economic Security Project um, and other groups, but it was relatively minimal compared to other, uh, compared to fighting for other programs. Um, I think that's uh, perhaps born out of the fact that the expanded CTC proposal. Um, is a relatively new one. Uh, it's not one that has been debated for, for decades. Um, and so I think that that to me is the, the dilemma that uh Democrats uh partly faced. And I think, yes, as you point out, I think in a in a uh if we had started with Build Back better, if we had tried um the expanded child tax run on a permanent basis earlier on, before you know the, the Afghanistan withdrawal, inflation going up, uh the um, the Delta virus, uh, emerging. I think if you, if you had that, uh, debate happened before the summer of 2021 and the fall of 2021, then I think we probably would have been able to pass an expanded child tax credit, um, and, um, and get that through.
0: I'd love to hear my politics are pretty centrist. So a book like this and a person like you is actually an important, are, are important checks on my instincts because my <laughs> instinct is to say, Okay. Here's why we can't do this, 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 or that. Here's why. Okay, Nikhil, you're 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 ignoring this political dynamic or this thing. When when you talk about these policies, when you write this book, you're basically just laying it out in front of me, saying, actually, here are the stakes, and actually, during a period, we actually were able to do it. So I would love for you, without me interrupting with any, well, actually, we can't do that. Just give me the. I guess they kind of pretend it's the 1960s and we don't have like a political economy that's been checked by the Vietnam War and Nixon and Watergate and like a lack of trust in government and like things not quite going in the direction that, um, you know, FDR, Kennedy, Johnson, Democrats wanted. Like what what is Like use your imagination. Like what can we achieve um, if we had the will within reason when it comes to American poverty?
1: Or it's it's a it's a good question. I mean, I I thought a lot. I thought a lot about this, and when I was at the Senate, um, it really felt in in the first year of my tenure there that I was in the shoes, in similar shoes that the architects of the New Deal and the Great Society were were once uh, were once in, um, and it felt like there was uh, a real moment where we could come together as a country um, and finished the unfinished business of the Great Society, of the civil rights movement, of the Poor People's Campaign. Um, and it felt I had an enormous weight of responsibility on my shoulders as a policymaker in, in that way. Um, and, and that, I think, especially was the case because I had spent um, the, the past several years uh, working and and interviewing and conducting research in the poorest, one of the poorest neighborhoods in this country, Kensington, um, so I knew the stakes at play. I knew that um there was a, I, I had witnessed enormous suffering um and pain uh, afflicting poor and um, middle income people. Um, and that it was it was to me it was it was incredibly important that government step up uh, and reduce that suffering and that pain. Um, and if 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 we didn't, that would allow uh th- that would I think push people, to accept more authoritarian anti-democratic forces and and mindsets and policies. Um so you know I think we had we had, we had a uh, there was great urgency at the moment. I think um and it starts from the idea that we should build a cradle to grave social democratic state. So you start from the beginning. You start with um neonatal care and early childhood education, universal preschool and child care so that there's a a birth through five early care system, where regardless of your income, every child uh, is cared for and has a safe place to be to be during those critical years of the development. Um, and then, you know, in, in, if I had to design it, that would be a part and parcel of the larger K twelve system. You know, we have a very fragmented. Uh, child care and, and pre-K system compared to the K-12 system it's you have some private providers and you have some public providers and then you know a, a parent might have to send their kid to a um uh the, the public pre-K for a couple hours and then at 3 pm they have to leave work and then go to send their kid to the 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 private child care a couple miles away like it's very dis- dysfunctional and it's not designed to help working parents um at, in any in any regard so you start with you start with early childhood education, then you go through to the K-12 system um, and fully funded public schools. And I talk about how in Philadelphia uh you have a school system that has been deliberately starved of resources by Harrisburg and by the federal government. Um, typically speaking, and I think this will be important for your viewers and listeners, uh, the federal government has a relatively small role in larger uh public education. You know, roughly speaking 7% of of school's spending comes from the federal government. Um and then about 45 47% comes from the state and then the same amount comes from local property taxes. Um but in the most regressive states like Pennsylvania, um only 37 38% of a school's funding is coming from the state and the rest is coming from uh the from, from uh, local property taxes puts a burden on cities particularly cities with low tax bases um to fully to, full, to to fund their schools and then you add you compound that with the fact that you are dealing with a very economically marginalized population by and large almost every child or the vast majority of kids living in poverty or economic insecurity um, then you deal with the fact that you have school buildings that are literally falling apart with asbestos and lead and um uh, lack of air conditioning and uh, and humane safe classrooms. Um, and then you add the fact that you're pairing, paying teachers abysmal uh salaries uh, salaries that um uh, that you could probably in some in some places you could probably earn more at a uh, working at McDonald's or Walmart, um, than being a teacher. Um, and then so you, you know, I think you start so you start with early childhood education, you fully fund the schools. And then you think about all the other institutions that you that children interact with. Healthcare. Um, I'm a big believer. You know whether you know you can we can debate Medicare for all or single payer, but at the very least, I'm a big believer in Medicare for kids, covering covering kids um, in totality under a Medicare system, and then obviously trying to reduce the Medicare eligibility age on the on the on the front on the on the upper echelon. Um, housing, making sure that every child is a safe place to live um an investment in affordable, affordable housing, all types of housing, whether that might mean um you know, luxury developments all the way to, to affordable units. I think we just need more housing. Uh, and then particularly housing located in in transit and near public transit so that you can uh so that people can get access to those benefits. Um, and then on um and then on safe neighborhoods, you know, it's really I think the the book really sh- tries to show, that everyone deserves to be able to walk down the street in their neighborhood without the fear of getting shot, assaulted, or mocked. That I think is a basic human right. Um, and I think uh, when we talk about crime and we talk about sis- social dislocation, it is very important uh, that we address the root causes of that uh, of those social ills um, in a comprehensive way. And we shouldn't shy away from, uh, from that in any respect. Um, and then finally, I think uh, in terms of full employment, uh, economy, uh, investing in public employment, in living wage jobs. Um, you know whether that might mean, uh, you know, really a civilian climate core, um, so that people can enter uh, decent, dignified work in in uh, in environmental sector. Um, and then you know all the uh, other things around food insecurity and um and, and 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 other issues. So I think it's to me it's a comprehensive agenda. And the, the, I think the brilliance of Build Back Better was that it would have virtually touched the life of every American at every sector and phase of their life. Um, tuition-free public college, home healthcare, um, affordable housing investment, paid family medical leave, Medicare to include dental, vision, and hearing care. Um, I think the the research shows very clearly that when you make those investments on the front end, you will ultimately reduce costs on the back end in the form of lower crime, Lower spending on public assistance programs and lower economic productivity. Um, and I also point out in at the end of the book a, a study by the National Academies about child poverty, and which says that the annual toll of child poverty is 800 billion to 1.1 trillion dollars each year. So it doesn't matter whether you know if you're a listener, you don't care about child poverty. That's your prerogative. But this is money coming out of your own pocket. This is money taken out of all of our pockets. It affects whether you are rich, poor, or working class. Um, And so I think, to me, the investments that we make on the front end will ultimately make our society more equitable, it will make our society safer, and it will make our society more democratic um, in, in totality.
0: I'd love to hear from you to bring my DC side back into things. What do you think is the sustainable political project that could bring about what you just described here? Because if we think about the war on poverty, the war on poverty emerges towards the tail end, obviously, of the of the FDR era, but it's emerging from a United States, which has won World War II. It's at the height of its economic power. It's before Vietnam has gone really bad, so you're at the real height of confidence in that frame. It's, America, it's the America that's going to the moon. Um... You know, in the book, like we could critique um, welfare, we're ending welfare as we know it if you're Bill Clinton in the 1990s. But something that I think younger people from our cohort who tend to miss when they attack Bill Clinton and Joe Biden and the Democrats of the 1990s um, was that um, I don't think for good or for ill, the welfare and social policies of the 60s were sustainable in the 1990s and the 1980s in the same way. Um, So ending big government as we know it. Ending welfare as we know it; those were a very those were very specific, specific political attempts designed to prevent a Republican from winning election in 1996, and for preventing um, Newt Gingrich from having successful uh, midterms in 1998. Which, once again, actually works. You have Democrats winning the presidency consistently. Obviously, Al Gore doesn't become president, but he wins the popular vote. Compare that to. Um, Ronald Reagan in 1984. So could you speak to the political project aspect of this? Because I think that's the strongest critique that centrists just have, which is this is just not politically sustainable. Politics is about the, the the art of the possible rather than the art of like, okay, if we could magically technocratically set aid at X amount, we'd live in this world. So I'd love mm-hmm. you to speak to that. Speak to that. Sure.
1: Yeah, I think it's, it's you know, I, I appreciate you uh, recounting some of that history because I think we're uh the politics of today um are are vastly different um and I I'm a big believer in in focusing on, in Democrats focusing on bread and butter economic issues I think we I think the the job of the party is to explain and to show people uh that we will make your lives better um and you know I I joke around sometimes uh to my to my colleagues and former colleagues and my friends that you know, perhaps Joe Biden should have called Bill Back Better the anti-crime bill of, of 2021. Um, and you know, there was as we saw in the aftermath of the pandemic, a, a major rise in in violent crime um in in some American cities. Um, I you know, I would have said that these are all policies that would have reduced the level of crime and social dislocation in this country. Um, but I think it goes my my, my larger point is again, the how we should focus on the policies and programs that will provide people with decent standard of living um and to i think it's important to also pick the fights um and to name the enemy um you know i i am very um impressed and amazed by the rejuvenation the rejuvenation of the the labor movement whether it's amazon workers or starbucks workers uh or um uaw workers on strike um You know, I think there's a a revived labor movement. And I think that is the core of my politics, um, where to show people that you can fight for your rights, fight for decent wages and good benefits. Um, And the question, obviously, is how will that trickle to the rest of uh, the American economy? Um, And, you know, it is it is very tough because you're dealing with that piece, but you're also dealing with a Congress that is completely dysfunctional. Um, where you know we have a situation where we can't get even basic bills um, voted on, um, and I, I I don't have too much hope at the federal level um, for uh, th- th- for my policies to or these ideas to be enacted as long as there's a Republican-led House. There needs to be a Democratic trifecta again for for any of these policies to have a chance uh, in the future. And I also just want to note that it is you know just compare the Democratic Party in Congress of say 2010 or even 2015 to the, the the party in Congress of 2021, you would not find 49 Senate Democrats on board with $1.75 trillion of spending. Uh, that is a remarkable achievement. You would not find 48 Democrats on board with $3.5 trillion of social and economic spending. Um, the party is, you know, thanks to I think Senator Sanders, to Senator Warren, Black Lives Matter, the Occupy Movement, um, Fight for 15, the uh, trade unions, all of that together, as well as the pandemic, um, I think shifted our politics uh, in a a, a leftward direction um, and provided the the intellectual oxygen as well as the political space uh, for uh, a changing conception of what government um, can do so. I, I that to me is I think an achievement. Even as we couldn't get everything across the finish line, uh, it is that that I think is gives me hope that next time when Democrats have control of the uh, of all three uh, branches I'm uh, sorry all three chambers um, that um, uh, that we can get something uh, big uh, ac- across. And you know the, the the question around the you know the great uh, FDR and the great society. I always try to uh, make it. I always try to make it clear that what I'm proposing are inherently American ideas. It is it is directly reviving the spirit of the New Deal and the Great Society. And I think um, it would it would do progressives and Democrats a service if we couched our rhetoric in a more patriotic American agenda uh, around combating economic security uh, insecurity. Um, and inequality, um, I think that would be uh, more helpful than talking about socialism and, um, and democratic socialism. I think those are words and policies and ideologies that turn off people. But when, when you talk about how we are going to finish the New Deal project, uh, and we're going to fight for democratic democracy in, in our workplaces, in our economic and, and social institutions, in our schools, Um, That, I think, is more compelling and and more meaningful to people than talking about democratic socialism or or so forth.
0: Well, and I, I think that's really well stated just in the sense that if you actually look at the model for the ideal, and once again, insert statement of, The New Deal didn't include, and I'm not saying this dismissively, but the the New Deal, especially if you're talking about, um, you know, Black people in the South, like, had all sorts of, like, flaws in it. But, like, broadly, we're talking about it as a model for mass political and economic change in the face Mm -hmm. of a crisis opportunity. It's not couched in a revolution – it's not couched in purely revolutionary terms. Now, at a policy level, it's revolutionary, but FDR actually – uses that kind of Bismarckian, um, this is how we retain the social order, by extending rights, by extending this, 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 and that. The same thing is true. LBJ is not a a, a revolutionary. So I think there's this like interesting dynamic where folks who, I kind of worry that something that's happened in our politics is people who should be filling one function have fallen into other functions. So I think Mm. activists play a very, very, very important role. Like I just said earlier, like you're kind of here with this book, which isn't purely, it's, it's academic. It's popular, it's academic, but it's, So it's activism adjacent, but your job is to take this book and be like, okay, think tank scholar Marshall, take your foreign policy hat off for a second and confront the face of American poverty. That's actually like a really important thing. And I also think to your point, a fight for 15 organizer, that's actually a very, very, very important thing that actually moves things on the ground. But clearly you've had a bunch of people who are activists. I think enter into policy roles and a bunch of policy people who like are actually policy brained enter into the activism spaces. Mm-hmm. And I just every I, I kind of see this when I'm chatting with people. It, it becomes kind of like frustrating in that context. So I'm curious if you because you're you're wearing a bunch of different hats here. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that idea?
1: Sure. Yeah. No. It's 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 interesting because I have been an organizer. I've been a policymaker, and I'm a journalist and a, and a sociologist. So I, yeah, I have all these different <laughs> hats that I'm 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 wearing, and I'm. Uh, it's it's always disorienting. Which hat am I wearing at one one time? Um, but it, it to me, um, I, you know, m- perhaps I can answer that by talking a little bit about messaging. I think the question around message discipline is one that uh, a lot of activists, unfortunately, have not learned. Um, I think you can you can talk about that in the context of the uprisings uh, in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd um, and the way people talk about policing and criminal justice and um, and crime um i also think there's uh you know i i i was really i, I was dismayed by the fact that a, you know a lot of the um a lot of progressive activists were not uh involved in the fight for build back better um i think that you know when we talk about you know you can talk about um uh you know various criminal justice policies and we can we can debate those uh the effectiveness of various uh of uh, r- various um, slogans and, and policies. But I think inherently, if we're trying to ensure that people are living dignified lives, then you would fight for something like Build Back Better. Uh, and so I was disappointed that that was not a demand, that people were not in the streets pushing for those programs in the same way that they were uh, pushing for um, other anti carcial policies in 2020 um, and 2021. So Um, So I think message discipline is, I think, is is incredibly important. Um, I think people need to pull their ideas um, and their policies. They need to figure out what policies are actually most uh, attractive to the general electorate. Um, And that doesn't mean that you don't support those uh, other things, but it means that you prioritize one thing over another. Um, And I think it it goes back to the point I made around bread and butter issues, talking about living, uh, raising minimum wage, public jobs programs. Uh, good well-funded public schools, um and um affordable housing, uh getting money out of politics, uh, you know, all those things are extremely popular. 70, 80 percent of Americans support many of those policies. But why don't we talk about them? Why is that not the overarching narrative that that Democratic politicians are engaged in? Um, I think that's a failing of the party. Um and I think Biden, uh the president has actually um has has actually been able to craft an important narrative around that the challenge is however that the affordability crisis has not been fully on a uh, fully addressed because of the failure to pass bill back better so it's harder to make that 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 uh that push when a lot of his agenda did not ultimately go through but i think his rhetoric around centering working people uh making sure that they're that um that corporations pay their fair share um that uh, that we stand with workers on strike uh, for justice and dignity. You know, all those things are ideas that, frankly, have never been talked about by a Democrat president in 50 years. Um, so I think that is a, an important consequential development that should be acknowledged. Even the ideas, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, the president going and um, and uh, walking the picket line with the UAW workers. That is a remarkable uh, uh development in american political life that i think we should not you know shy away from acknowledging
0: so in these last you know 15 minutes or so i want to really focus on the book because i i really want this to be a book that um and i'll just say a, a quick personal note um i most of my work focuses on in in the foreign policy space um i i suspect i'm quite a bit more hawkish on a variety of foreign policy questions than you are but I, I do think, as I learn more about FDR's presidency, the more him building the American arsenal of democracy. I host a podcast called Arsenal of Democracy. I actually don't think you could separate America's role in World War II from America's role in the new, with the New Deal. Um, I actually think these are inextricably tied together, and the the separation thereof. Uh, the, the, the The book that you're basically taking artic- the, the, the my take from the book here is. I can talk about how we need to have a 300-ship Navy um, till my lungs give out. I really seriously believe that. But if at the same time, I don't also focus on these issues of poverty, I think there's actually something deeply missing from that picture. Um, so that was just like a, a real like, positive reaction I had to your book. Um, so let me give the the quick negative then. And it's not even a negative. It's It's more of like a, a frustration I think readers may experience. Let's talk about personal responsibility for a second. Because you and I are of similar age cohorts. So I am I would bet money we went through a similar experience during our like upper middle class high school, like AP Gov um, experience where it <laughs> talks about the 1980s. And it says, you know, in the 1980s, you know, Ronald Reagan is the president. And he talks about the, the welfare queen. It turns out she didn't actually exist. And it turns out that a lot of the language around personal responsibility, actually, these are really dog whistles about black people. Richard Nixon and Richard Nixon's staff, they said all these horrible things like this, this, this and that. I will acknowledge that that's all true it's very well documented but that said in the book you are documenting so many examples of just bad individualized decision making like there's this this really harrowing piece towards the end where um one of the main characters Ryan um his um not mother-in-law because he's not married to the woman who has his baby but um the mother the mother of his of uh, the mother of his Baby mom, I'm just going mean, to keep it yep. simple there. She slaps them across the face when they're getting in an argument. Um, and then later, um, Bianca, uh, the the mother of his child, like hits him across the face during a conversation. And I just found myself, and, and, and throughout the book, like you're making reference to the fact that we need to focus on root causes. We need to focus on the structural realities. And I, I, I actually agree with that. But I just found myself so frustrated. I wanted to shake them and just be like, fucking stop. Right, did And I think there. And I think that's like there's something like deeply American about that, and that gets to the awkward politics of individual responsibility and taking charge of oneself and behaving properly. So that's just my visceral. This isn't Marshall the podcaster speaking. This is Marshall the reader. Can you speak to that? And once again, you're not. You don't make yourself a part of the book at all. So like, I'm not saying like, why didn't you just grab them and tell them to get their lives? Because that's, that's not the book. So I'm asking you now, like, help me just like wrestle with this feeling because I, I know. That it's easy as hell for me to sit here as like upper middle class podcaster who came from a PhD lawyer background to say, like, get your stuff together. Because frankly, my stuff wasn't together in my like early 20s and I got a million different chances to fix things. So I I understand that, but I still have something that viscerally is saying. Any political message that's telling me I can't talk about personal responsibility, there's just something wrong about that.
1: Sure. Yeah, no, it's, you know, throughout the book. I describe poor decisions by either the main characters or uh, other people in their lives. And, you know, sometimes it's simple or, or kind of cut and dried as engaging in fights, uh, as you point out. And, and that is, you know, those are, you know, I think that is born out of a number of things. I think obviously just bad decisions being made. I also think it it um, is a product of living in a very violent neighborhood. I think when you're living uh when you're living among um a neighborhood where there's constant fear and risk of victimization that means that many of your interactions are going to be defined by violence um whether you like it or not um and that doesn't that's not trying to you know take the people off the hook for their individual actions and we can we can talk about that but I think it's important to contextualize how many of these uh decisions or actions are happening within a very particular environment where, um, where, you know, this is, um, in Philadelphia, uh, it is a city that has experienced some of the highest levels of homicides per capita of any large city in America. Um, in last year, last school year alone, 179 Philadelphia students were shot, 179 students alone, just in one year were shot. Um, and, and then you add to that, uh, in in the kensington neighborhood where i spent time the babies are expected to live to the age of 71 uh 17 fewer years than the babies born just 4 miles away in the white affluent society hill um very high levels of poverty uh the largest open air drug market on the east coast i mean just bring it all together um and that is going to cloud and influence people's decision making and their behaviors um and so I, I I try to explain that yes you know I, and, I, and I, it was important for me to um you know it's it's easy as a progressive and a as a social Democrat to um leave out and omit some of those stories because it doesn't it doesn't fall uh it doesn't fit well into a larger narrative necessarily but I thought it was important just to put that in there um and keep them in there because that's it's important to uh depict people's lives in the most accurate, way possible as a journalist it was important to do that um but then at the same time i provide i marry that agency those individual experiences and struggles with the social structure and the history to help not fully explain but to partially and largely explain why those conditions exist and they don't exist in a vacuum um and so i think the um the example that you presented and other examples in the book um i i i would i would go as far to say that I don't know if they would exist or be as so extreme if you didn't have the level of deprivation and violence that exists in the neighborhood. Um and I think, you know, I, I and I would also just comment on the criminal justice policies as well. You know, I, I strongly uh, recognize that um that th- there needs to be a uh, there needs to be sanctions and some level of punishment when people engage in in egregiously violent activities. Um and So, but, but at the same time, I would also acknowledge that as, as, um, Jill Leobi and other scholars have pointed out black communities and black and brown communities, um, have been both under policed as well as over policed, over policed for more trivial quality of life offenses and under policed for the more violent offenses that are, that go unsolved. It is unacceptable to me that in a civilized society that, um, 30, 20, 30 percent of homicides, only 20, 30 percent of homicides are going solved in in uh, in Philadelphia and other major cities. That's unacceptable that people cannot cannot um, get justice for their loved ones being raped, assaulted and murdered in in their neighborhoods. That's just uh, that that is a failure of the state to provide for each and every human being. Um, And so, uh, you know, I, I I I think it's important to think about root causes. Obviously, there's a role of the criminal justice system to make sure that people who are engaging in repeated violent offenses uh, are, are not uh, going to be allowed to wander the streets. Um, and then also to recognize that a lot of these conditions have a mental health component as well, um, that there's just not a uh, sufficient or even an adequate mental health system in this country, that people are people who are dealing with homelessness and addiction and other social ills or just, just fall through the cracks um, and um and are living um in, in great desperation on, on the streets of this country. I mean, you can go to many blocks of Kensington and you will find 10 cities concentrated on various corners where people have been living months and you know, even years on on the streets with no level of care or treatment. That is a failure of the state. Um, and we can talk about personal responsibility, and yes, people are responsible for. Uh, for many of the things that happen in their life. But I think there's also a obligation and responsibility of the state to ensure that there are enough treatment beds available, uh, that there are places where people um, don't have to worry about overdosing um, and can be in the safe care of a, of a health professional. Those are things I think that are the responsibility of the state along with um, individual responsibilities.
0: So for these last two questions, um, a, a question that I, I suggest maybe you um, address this in the the, the paperback version, um, and maybe you said this um, specifically and I missed it, what do the recipients of aid owe to the broader society that's giving them aid? Um, the reason why I bring that up is you you had a semi-disparaging comment about the implementation of work requirements when it came to welfare policies, especially in the 1990s. And there's actually a variety of, like, very poorly thought out and unfair implementation that's happening at the state level. So, like, let's let's put that aside um, cool. and just focus on the requirements themselves because I do know um, I've had, you know, Oren Cass on the podcast. Like, something yep. that Oren Cass, is one of the leading conservatives who engages with this topic, is very much like, oh, no, like, we conservatives, we believe in work requirements, we believe in... Asking things of people, and I guess my concern is sometimes it, and because I'm I'm asking this from a political feasibility perspective. I don't think it's politically feasible. What was politically unfeasible about the 1980s and 1990s social welfare policy was it seemed to the public at large that there were no expectations and nothing was being asked of um, the people who were receiving things. And once again, there's a there's a really long band of what that could actually look like. But I'm curious how you would think about that. Well, so
1: there's some great scholars and researchers who in in the 80s and 90s who examined the social welfare system and particularly aid to families with dependent children. Um, and there's a there's one famous study that found that a very uh, most people who on welfare were on welfare for various spells of time. They would go in and off of welfare during times of economic hardship, and then they would leave it when they had more security. Uh, a minority did linger for a longer period of time. Um, and that and I think that was a that was a challenge and problem. Um, I would also argue that you know, some of the provisions of AFDC actually prevented the formation of two- parent households, you know even just the idea of a man in the house rule um, on how women had to constantly hide their uh, boyfriends and husbands or and and loved ones um, because they would lose welfare benefits as a result of that. Um, that that was a challenge. Um, I also think there was a there were, there were also challenges with the fact that we didn't have uh, a public employment uh, program, uh, similar to one that Daniel Patrick Moynihan and Coretta Scott King and other uh, folks advocated for, um, so that people could have a job uh, if they they wanted to. You know, there was an issue of spatial. We mismatch. pause there
0: real quick. Yeah do 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 you have do you have ten minutes? Sure, yeah. I just, want to, I just want to be generous if your time. Where I, where yes, this no out. problem, yeah. Okay, so let's, let's pause there on the Jennifer Patrick Monahan thing because that is so fascinating because there's no yeah. doubt you know, um, and listeners might not be aware, Jennifer Patrick Monahan, um, before he was the senator of New York, um, he worked um, in sociology space. He was in the Nixon administration, but he wrote a, a, a famous report um, about the state of the black family um, sort the collapse of the black family unit. Mm. Um, and conservatives will obviously talk a lot about well how prescient this was. And what was prescient was it was he wasn't just focusing on black people. He was saying, Hey, like as a whole, there's a broader family unit issue that we're gonna run into. And basically the next we could debate the specifics, but the next 50 years track that. But what conservatives do not talk about is the 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 full employment. Mm. job aspect response to that so can you talk because i I didn't know that so i'd love for you just to like talk about that because that's because that's that's a really interesting kind of uh merging this is why this is why Moynihan's like an interesting political figure because he's genuinely like a neoconservative he's genuinely like this weird mix of different instincts but yeah so speak to that please
1: (laughs) no absolutely i mean i have just been uh profoundly influenced by by Moynihan. um I mean, the, the report that you talked about was the famous Moynihan report uh on the black family. But, you know, unfortunately, a lot of his policy prescriptions were left out, were entirely left out of that report. It was mostly an analysis or an evaluation of the plight of uh of African-American families, the rise of single parent households and welfare dependency and and crime and other issues. Um, it left out entirely the fact that he was on the record one of the strongest champions of a Public jobs program, a full employment economy. Um, you know, it was something that he and uh the labor secretary Wirtz um, had pushed for uh in the early days of the war on poverty. You know, they they essentially argue that we can't educate, we can't teach our way out of poverty, we have to provide people with decent public employment that pays a living wage. Um, and you know, obviously there was some uh some of their orientation was about this kind of matriarch, uh, this patriarchal family structure where the man would go to work and the woman would stay home. Um, but at the very least, I think what was really important was that they believed that uh, we should invest in, um, in in those jobs programs, um, as well as in other types of income uh, programs to provide people with a level of income, whether it was uh, not necessarily a basic income for everybody, but for families um, as well. So Moynihan, you know, he has a, he has a fascinating trajectory and that he was instrumental in um, something in during the Nixon administration called the family allowance plan which would have provided a, a essentially a basic a minimum basic income for families um and you know ultimately did not pass um and, and pass congress um, but it was an example of uh one of the most robust social uh welfare policies and you know the unfortunate thing as well was that the left um I think, had a play in, its, in the demise of that program because they said it wasn't enough, um, and so we're not going to support it. And then on the child care program as well, there was a major effort to provide universal childcare in the 1970s under Nixon. And then, obviously, Nixon, on the advice of Pat Buchanan and other conserv- religious conservatives who were talking about family values and, and the traditional um, family structure, uh, they convinced him to oppose that piece of legislation, but, but Moynihan had an enormous role to play um, in, uh, you know, as he held many neoconservative ideas and and theories about crime and and other issues. Ha- had a very social democratic core when it came to ec- core economic um, issues, and and that is something I am uh, I, I am very influenced by and and um, and indebted to his work and scholarship.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting. So um, the last question I want to ask you, because you have a lot of expertise in the education field, which you haven't spoken as much about, I'd love to just understand where you think we are in the education policy debate, because as you could probably tell, and listeners definitely know, I like to think in terms of timelines. So if it's 1980, the famous Nation at Risk report comes out in 1983, like that, that (laughs) we've we've kind of hit the two reports that people are probably going to know. Like Nation at Risk comes out, says we think everything's hunky-dory. For schools, it's actually not hunky-dory. That really... Gerd's discussion for the next uh, decade or so. In the '90s, you have Clintonian third-way politics. You're talking about school uniforms. You're talking about um, like policies, kind of like in that direction. Um, and then in the 2000s, you have the initial consensus of No Child Left Behind. It's famously Ted Kennedy um, and George W. Bush who do that. Um, in the Obama administration, you have the era of like race to the top. So it's kind of recognizing like, okay, like we definitely think that No Child Left Behind. Like went a little too far, but like there's definitely still something there in terms of like using the power of the federal government to sort of interject money into this into the school system to enact change in that way. There's a debate within the Democratic Party about like charter schools and reform initially. Um, the charter reformers, quote unquote, because I know it's like a loaded term. Uh, to say if you're like looking at that debate, they're basically winning. The teachers' unions take a bunch of hits, but because the results don't really track with the hype a lot of the energy seems to go away. And then you have like a lot of the um interest on that interest on that issue in the center left kind of dissipates. For example, Cory Booker, before he's a senator, is a big charter school guy. He's now a senator. The party's moved on. He's kind of moved on from that part of his legacy. Um Tell me if any part of that conventional, like, popular history is, like, incorrect or mischaracterized. But if it's directionally true, which I think it is, where are we now? Because it really feels like we're in this weird state where basically everyone recognizes the status quo isn't working, but everyone got their shot at trying their big Hail Mary. This mm. is the thing. We tried the uniforms. We tried No Child Left Behind. We tried do we tried Zoom school. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where are yeah. we right now?
1: No, it's it's a it, it was a really succinct uh, analysis. Um, I would just add that you know when when Betsy DeVos became Secretary of Education, mm. um, the the bipartisan consensus around privatization and school choice um, and busting up teachers' unions um, dissipated because Democrats didn't want to be attached uh, to the, the more vehemently right wing record and agenda that Trump and DeVos were espousing. Um, I mean, we're in this unique moment we you know we've come out of um you know the pandemic of the school closure battles and and fights um and and things have you know I think settled down um remarkably so I think you you the debate around charters um versus traditional public schools has uh largely winnowed winnowed down. I think the Democratic Party, at least on the at the federal government level, uh the president has been very supportive of Public education of community schools of teachers unions. Um, I think the party has recognized the uh, the important role that they play, as well as building up the the public sector. I mean, just recently, Miguel Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona um, criticized um, a plan in Pennsylvania to provide private school vouchers. Um, so I think there's uh, at least from the Biden administration, there's there's a recognition that we're not going to. Um, weighed into many of these fights. That publicly, we might make a statement or two, uh, but we're gonna we're gonna mostly focus on um, our, our economic uh, agenda, and we're gonna let the school wars play themselves out uh, at the local and the state level. And that's really where it's happened. You know, obviously, the more uh, notable examples are in Florida with with Governor Ron DeSantis and his uh, his work to dismantle New College of Florida and the road. Uh, Tenure protections and other academic freedoms, um, but you know, I think the to me the the grave challenge and crisis is in the fact that you are seeing a massive expansion of vouchers at the state level, as well as you know even in even in Philadelphia and other places, you are you are still seeing the ongoing erosion of public education. In Philadelphia alone, forty uh, percent of kids, nearly forty percent of kids, are attending charters or cyber charter schools. Uh, that is a massive uh, uh, growth in in enrollment since the 1990s when they first came onto the scene. Um, And that worries me because uh, you're you're seeing that in New Orleans, there are no traditional public schools left. It is an entirely old charter district, Detroit, Los Angeles, Chicago. Um, And you have seen a crop of mayors like Brandon Johnson in, in Chicago and other places push back against the ongoing charter Expansion. You know, my my position on charters is, is is very nuanced, which is that, you know, I I think there's some wonderful, equitable, student-centered charter schools out there. They should be widely adopted and and emulated by the traditional school system. Um, but they are not a panacea for our educational woes. Um, you know, I think we should go back to the original vision of charters, which were these um uh, these exp- these great experiments. In innovation and and new types of pedagogy, uh, where the best practices would then be brought into the large larger public system uh, for everyone to enjoy. Um, I think that has been co-opted by billionaires and some of these corporate reformers and and um, and Wall Street types um, to as a way to delegitimize and privatize the public schools. Um, so I, I I'm a big believer in uh, in you know we can still have charters. But they should be operating in a very different capacity than they currently are, um, and and the best ideas should be brought into the public systems so that our schools are more equitable, more humane, more child centered, and more responsive to the needs of of students and teachers.
0: And yeah, look, I'll close with this. I said this to a prominent figure in the uh, public public education uh, movement a few weeks ago. But the more you read about the disastrous. Impact of Zoom school and the lack of reopening on children. The more I'm just flummoxed that the public school side of these debates wasn't able to better leverage that into just a battering ram for the next decade. Oh, you thought our schools weren't good and we needed to do like actually, like we see the impact when these schools aren't functioning. And actually, we we ran the impact of can we digitize it? Actually, like doesn't work. Like think of so many of these, and this this comes through in your book, like. The, the, the what's there's a there's I, I'd never really thought about the impact. Like let me put it this way: like there's a a portion of your book that's talking about the closing of of a local school, and the part of me that like remembers No Child Left Behind debates from the 2000s um, is just thinking like, look like if the school's failing, like there does have to be accountability, and like. I don't know like are they basically saying if this thing continues to be a dropout factory forever we're just going to let it go kind of forever um which I think is a fair instinct but the way this comes through in your book is this isn't just a school like this is a place it's a, it's a, it's an institution it's a it's a firm part of the neighborhood and an any neighborhood discussion community. It's an anchor, of the, and I'd never. And once again, like, why are the child poverty interventions so important? Because well, the schools were closed, so people couldn't get food, right. and that's where a lot of right. these kids are actually getting food. So I, I just think the failure to fear of awkward conversations around teachers' unions causing schools to be closed a little too long caused the public school movement to drop the easiest win of the decade. When it comes to these arguments. That's just like you don't have to give me a take on that, but like that's just my personal sure. that, that that's my like Occam's race. So like that's that must be what's happening here. Cause it's just it's just so obvious. I mean, man, like look at the states where schools opened up early. Our schools do such a good job. Like, this is the easiest story ever. And I just it's just sort of shocking to me that it's not being kind of waved around as a flag. Um, I mean, I, I would just, you know,
1: comment. I mean, I wrote a piece for the nation magazine in the summer of 2021 where I argued that it we, we can safely reopen schools in the form of outdoor experiential learning. like they, there shouldn't just be remote learning that we should tap into the power of cities and 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 um and uh, urban neighborhoods as well as the entire landscape of public institutions, parks and libraries and um and and other facilities for children to be educated in that we didn't have to s- simply rely on. Remote education. And, you know, the kids that attended El Centro de Estudiantes, this alternative school, which I featured in the book, uh, they were enormously uh harmed by remote education. They did not show up. A lot of them just completely tuned out and were disengaged. And it, you know, there were some incredible educators who held classes in in um in community parks and in gardens where kids would come uh and congregate in the afternoon and evening hours. He would one teacher would go. Uh, door by door from to to each uh, of his students so that you would tutor them individually uh in the evenings um so there was there was a lot that I think we could have done better uh obviously none of this was we could not have pre- you know a lot of this we could not have prepared for in in, in the spring of 2020 um, but there was much more that I think schools could have done um to allow some form of in-person learning in in outdoor settings especially when we knew that the virus wasn't as transmissible outside uh, as it was indoors. Um, so I think that debate, I think was that that conversation was important um, to be had. But I think, as you also pointed out, um, it's important to acknowledge the critical function that schools play as anchors of the community, where many kids will not get, uh, will not be fed um, if they did not come to school. That that is the one place they go to get a free breakfast and lunch and, and a snack. Um, it is one of the f- one of the few stable sanctuaries of their lives. Um, and so that I think the pandemic you know obviously the, the incredible pain and death and suffering that it invoked, um, but also on the on the level of uh, education that the fact that we just abandoned millions of children and they were they had no place safe place to be uh, during the day. Uh, that was also a travesty uh, in and of itself.
0: I think that is a sobering but excellent place to end. Thank you so much for joining me on the realignment. Thank you so much. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something like this sort of mission or want to access our subscriber exclusive QA, bonus episodes, and more, go to realignment.supercast.com and subscribe to our $5 a month, $50 a year, or 500 for for lifetime membership rates.